El Fanboy, episode 25. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 25th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Ah, 2017. Uh, look, I know it's only August 1st, so it's a little odd to be uh, doing a retrospective on 2017 at this stage of the game, but this week I had a chance to see two of the most beloved films this year so far, and it just strikes me as fairly unbelievable what a bipolar year it's been. I mean, if you think about it, we've gotten some of the finest major studio fare arguably ever, and we've also had some historic failures. Uh, you know, think about it. So for the same year that gave us Logan, Wonder Woman, Baby Driver, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, War for the Planet of the Apes, Get Out, the Lego Batman movie, Dunkirk, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Split, that very same year also gave us The Great Wall, King Arthur Legend of the Sword, The Mummy, Fifty Shades Darker, Chips, Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, Underworld A Thousand, and The Emoji Movie. And if you look on the horizon, it's easy to predict that the Hollywood assembly line is going to continue to throw very, uh, shall we say, widely mixed titles at us. There's The Dark Tower, which looks like it's going to bomb, which is sad when you consider how many years the film was in development and how loved the uh, Stephen King source material is. Gerard Butler is set to appear in a very expensive turd called Geostorm that looks like it would have worked better as a, as a uh, Leslie Nielsen-led spoof on the career of Roland Emmerich. Then there's the mystery bag known as Justice League, which, you know, it's one of those dream properties that one would think has to be an instant classic. And yet, with the uh, tormented production it's had and all the behind-the-scenes changes at this point, folks will probably just settle for a movie that has opening credits, some imagery, and then closing credits. <laughs> but on the brighter end of things, uh, you know, we've also got uh, Thor Ragnarok, It, Kingsman 2, Murder on the Orient Express, and Star Wars The Last Jedi, which all look like they're going to end the year on a very high note. Something else that's noticeable about, uh, notable about 2017 isn't just how wide-ranging the quality has been, but how bold the films have been. You know, say what you will about the quality of the movies, but you can't sit there and argue that the studios haven't taken any gambles this year. In an age where it's popular to cynically say that originality is dead and that studios are complacent and ready to just sit on their asses churning out carbon copies of what's worked before, the major studios have taken serious risks to bring us some shit that's different this year. Look, I mean... Look at Logan, a hard-R, grim, modern-day Western that takes the most well-liked X-Men character, strips him down, breaks him apart, and, spoiler alert, kills him! Get Out, a socially relevant dissection of American culture that is as clever as it is timely. 
King Arthur, a big budget Guy Ritchie movie that reinvents the classic lore of King Arthur and attempts to bring him to a whole new generation. Say what you will about that movie and whether or not the world needed another King Arthur. Look at the production value. Look what went into it. Look at the team of people they assembled to make this thing. They went balls to the wall on this film without any sort of safety net, without any sort of inkling that maybe this was going to be a safe bet. And they said, let's make this King Arthur movie, whether you know it didn't turn out to be all that good. But again, it was a risk that they took. And, you know, uh, what about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets? Look at that. It's a big, sprawling space epic based on a comic book that hardly one that hardly anyone in North America has even heard of. Directed by a guy whose best known works are basically cult classics that nobody saw in theaters. I know the film is basically an indie, so we can't exactly uh, credit a major studio for taking a gamble on Valerian, but the mere fact that this movie got made and released as part of the summer blockbuster season is a testament to the efforts going into creating new experience for us this year, new experiences for us. Um... I mean, other examples of films that are like outside of the box, if you think about it, Dunkirk, Girl's Trip, Atomic Blonde, even The Dark Tower. I mean, just to circle back to that a sec, The Dark Tower is a very strange and unique story. You know, it's sort of sci-fi, it's sort of Western, it's sort of mythological, it's sort of, it's all over the place, you know, and and the film itself looks like it's going to have some storytelling conceits that are hard to like pre-package and to sell to mainstream audiences, which is why it's taken 20 fucking years to get the damn thing made. And yet here it comes. It's on the way. It doesn't look like it's going to pay off, but it's happening, you know? So we can't say that Hollywood has become risk averse. There've been a lot of gambles this year. Some have paid off handsomely. Others have bombed historically, but I just like to be one of the first to go on record and say that 2017 has been one of the best years ever in terms of sheer quality. There have already been so many great films this year, with several more on the horizon, that I may have to buy a whole new shelf for all the Blu-rays I'm going to have to buy later this year. And I'm not even someone who buys Blu-rays anymore. My collection has lied dormant for years. I mean, it's true. I've got this big shelf with like uh, six racks and it's still mainly DVDs. And think about it. DVDs have been a dead format now for at least the last four or five years. So for the last four or five years, I've barely added to it. I've had like six token Blu-ray up until this year. I mean, this year's just been awesome. I mean, I was already in love with 2017 just for giving me Logan, Wonder Woman, Homecoming, and even Kong Skull Island, by the way, which is a film I think will get better with time as people realize what a surprisingly thoughtful and entertaining romp it is. But, you know, what pushed this year over the top for me was the fact that I finally got around to seeing Baby Driver and War for the Planet of the Apes this week. Anytime I have these kinds of options even available to me at my local multiplex, it's like an embarrassment of riches. Usually, at any given time, there's only one movie I'm interested in. Right now, there are eight, and I've seen six of them. 
There's actually an urgency right now because there's so much great stuff out there that I have to squeeze in the time to get to the theater before another great-looking movie leaves the theaters for good. Right now, the, that honor belongs to Dunkirk and Atomic Blonde, which I have yet to see, thankfully. They're both pretty new, so I probably have another two weeks. But this is seriously an insane time to be a movie lover. There's just so much great film out there right now. It's, ah, like I said, it's an embarrassment of riches. So this week, I got to see not one, but two phenomenal films for very different reasons. Uh, which were Baby Driver and War for the Planet of the Apes. Let's talk about those a little bit. Baby Driver was one of those scenarios where my expectations were unreasonably high. Uh, A, I'm a big Edgar Wright fan. B, the reviews are through the roof. And C, there had been sort of like an epic build just for me to get to see it, which has nothing to do with the film itself. But, you know, getting to see the movie in and of itself had become an event because there had been like three other times where I almost got to see it where something fell through. There was one night where I was all set to see it and I I was going to meet up with a couple of my buddies at the theater um, we already like the, the plan was set. And then right before I was set to leave, one of my kids got sick and I couldn't go. There was another time where one of my friends had to bail because something happened with him. So I, I postponed it. Then there was a time where we were all set to see it, but another one of my friends had never seen Spider-Man Homecoming and he's a huge Spider-Man junkie. And that's why I ended up seeing Spider-Man Homecoming a second time, which I'm glad I did, by the way, because I liked it better on the second viewing. But we sort of allowed him to call the shots since he's a friend who goes to the movies maybe like once a year. What kind of a fucking loser is that, by the way? Um, But (laughs) he goes to the movies like once a year. So we're like, you know, we should see something he's dying to see. He wasn't dying to see Baby Driver, but he was dying to see Homecoming. So there's like three different times that getting to see this movie got postponed. So when I finally got to see it, you know, my internal hype was like, all right, this, there's no way this thing is going to live up. All this effort, all this time, all this brain and manpower that's gone into getting to finally see this. There's no way it can pay off and there's no way it's going to live up to all of the hype of the reviews and everything. I am happy to report that not only did it live up, it actually surpassed my insane hype. Um, Baby Driver is just a very, very special film. Um, You know, I haven't prepared any remarks about it, so this is all just sort of off the top of my head. It just, I got to say, Edgar Wright deserves a ton of credit. There's there's just an ingenuity to how he approached this film. There's an originality to it that just makes the whole thing sort of bounce off the screen. The whole thing percolates with this incredible energy. And it's so masterfully done. I mean, the whole movie really plays like a piece of music. You know, he really married and merged the the two different art forms with this film. You know, the whole thing is like a song and it's like a movie. The way the actors move, the rat-tat-tat dialogue, the way that he staged certain scenes so that just as a baby is walking past a window and there's a word on, you know, written on that window, that's when the that lyric and the song pops up. And like everything is like choreographed and shot like masterfully. All these long single take shots that show how much love and care and thought and creativity went into the building and staging and creation of this film. 
it's if you are a film buff, Baby Driver is just it's a buffet of things to love. You've got great actors, you've got great direction, you've got great writing, you've got stuff that makes your eyes pop out of your head because the action sequences are so uh, well choreographed, but you've also got stuff that'll grab you by the throat. There's some emotional things that happen in there where I felt my eyes welling up and I'm like, where did this come from? I don't even know these characters. I know nothing about this, but the way it's written and the way it's all sort of, you know, put together really just... It, it grabs you. It grabbed me. There were like two different times where I'm like, uh oh, I gotta, I gotta sort of hide the man tears from my friends that are here, because I don't know how this suddenly became so emotional. Um, it's just, it's just a great movie. Uh, Baby Driver. If you, you know, if you, if it's still playing near you, I strongly, strongly recommend it. Um, and by the way, just side note, I tweeted about this that night, but I'm gonna say it here. I've never actually said it out loud, but. Uh, Ansel Elgort, who plays Baby, um, I so wish that he would have been cast as young Han Solo, and not you know, and not for the movie they're currently making. I wish they would have cast him for that other concept, the one that I've kicked around before about a teenage Han Solo, instead of this one where you cast a thirty-year-old to play a Han Solo who's like five years younger than the Han we met in A New Hope. I wish they would have done more like a teenage Han Solo coming of age type story of how he became a smuggler and the uh, lovable scoundrel we all know him to be. I feel like Ansel Elgort would have been perfect for that. And I couldn't help but think of it over and over again because one of the outfits he wears a lot is this like gray jacket that's like the, the jacket itself is black and the sleeves are like white or gray. And it calls to mind visually that look of Han with the black vest with the light shirt under it. So there are times I just look at him and I'm like, it's fucking young Han. That's young Han. Uh, but that was a tangent. That movie's not happening. I just wish it was. Uh, but in short, Baby Driver is uh, totally worth it. If you have a chance, go check it out. Edgar Wright is the fucking man. And, you know, I guess... You know, while it's very unfortunate that his Ant-Man got scrapped after he developed it for eight years with Marvel Studios, I guess if this is what we get for that, then I guess it was all worth it. Because when Ant-Man fell off the uh, off the table for him, you know, he, he threw himself into Baby Driver. And you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. I think I, I, I think I got more out of Baby Driver than I would have gotten out of an Ant-Man movie at this point. Um, but okay, then there's War for the Planet of the Apes, which is one of those where I treated myself. I don't really know anyone who's interested in the movie, which, by the way, we'll get into that when we get into the box office in a bit. But, you know, I don't know anyone who wants to see it. And rather than drag a friend along or just miss the movie entirely because it's rapidly losing screens and probably won't be around much longer, I said, you know what? This is going to be a, a gift to me. This will be a treat to myself. Uh, so yesterday, after a day of having fun with the family and taking care of all of daddy's responsibilities and taking care of work responsibilities and helping this really nice couple that I'm working for on Saturday sort of map out a very unique and very uh, exciting and personal wedding for them, like I did last night. Uh, once all that was done, all my appointments and everything was over, 
I left the house at 10.30 to go see a 10.45 War for the Planet of the Apes at the Bay Terrace uh, multiplex just for myself. And I sat there and I thought, all right, you know, let's see. I don't know what to expect here. Um, you know, I enjoyed Rise. I enjoyed Dawn. But I don't, I don't really consider myself a big Planet of the Apes person. Uh, nothing against the series, uh, even the originals. I just, it's never been something that really spoke to me. You know, when I saw the original Planet of the Apes, uh, I was a little boy. And like a lot of those classics from the late 60s and, and early to mid 70s, I saw them because my dad loved them. I saw them because they were the films he grew up on. You know, he was born in 1961. So he, you know, he was a, a, a preteen and a teen during one of the golden eras of Hollywood filmmaking. So when I saw these movies, it was like him trying to show me the movies that meant something to him. So I, I probably saw the first Planet of the Apes when I was like nine or ten on one of our visitation weekends. You know, my, my parents were divorced. Um, and he got, you know, he rented Planet of the Apes and he hyped it up for me and told me all about what a great film it was for him when he was like 10 or whatever the fuck. And I saw it and I appreciated it, but it's for me, like, it's like, that's one of daddy's movies. It's nice. It's cool. I understand why it was a big deal, but that's a daddy movie. And in general, Planet of the Apes, I just, you know, it's just, I don't have like a personal investment. Uh, honestly, there's a part of me that's very like, I don't know if I really give a fuck. It's a bunch of talking apes and I don't, I can't really relate to this. Um, but I tried my best to like sort of subvert that, you know, the, the, the lights began to dim last night and I said, okay, let me, uh, let me give this film my all. And at the very least, let me see what the hell Matt Reeves is up to. You know, he's about to be directing the Batman, which is a property that I absolutely love and fucking live for. And by all accounts, this film is going to establish him as one of the Hollywood elite directors out there. So let me see how Mr. Matt Reeves is doing at this stage of his development as a filmmaker. Um, I got to say, the, it, it did take me a little bit. For the first like 10 minutes or so, I was having a hard time buying into this. Um, part of it is just, again, my whole feeling of, I don't know that I give a fuck about a film about talking apes. What are the stakes here for me? What do I, can I relate to any of this? Is the allegory potent enough for me to buy in? Why? You know, I just, and on top of that, for me, honestly, the CG, as good as it is, it's still, you could tell it's CG and a lot of the monkey movements, you know, they look way too humanoid. You could tell it's a guy, you know, who's been CG'd into a monkey. So the first 10 minutes... I, it, it was hard. On top of that, I really didn't, I, I didn't care for the opening text. To me, it felt a little bit like spoon feeding. Like, aren't we supposed to be under the assumption that everyone has seen the first two? You know, the, the, the opening titles just to me seemed a little odd. It seemed like, you know, didn't these movies just recently come out? So it's not like this is one of those sequels that took 10 years to make and people need a recap. So the opening titles and then the fact that like they had the uh, the words Rise and Dawn sort of pop out in the sort of logo font of those movies, it actually pulled me out of it. It felt too like Hollywood-ish. 
you know, I don't know. So right off the bat, I was like, uh-oh, I don't know if uh, if I'm going to buy into the hype on this thing. Then the first scene take, you know, unfolds, and again, I'm like, I don't know who to root for. The humans seem pretty sympathetic. The monkeys seem pretty sympathetic. I think they want me to care about the monkeys, but that seems like it's going to be a tall order because I can barely buy them as believable characters with the CG being sort of wonky. So I, I, I was like, this is going to be a very long two hours. But then somewhere during the confrontation, this isn't really a spoiler because it's not a seminal thing in the movie. You know, the, towards the end of the initial confrontation, where Caesar is looking at uh, four different uh, entities that he has captured from the other side and deciding what to do with them. Um, Somewhere in that sequence, something clicked. And I'm like, hmm, okay, you know what? Andy Serkis is really bringing it here. His voice is powerful. The acting in his eyes is powerful. All right, hang on. I'm, I'm kind of starting to believe in you. Then like five minutes later, something really dramatic happens at the uh, at their like base camp at the apes like headquarters. And all of a sudden that thing happened. My eyes were all shiny. I sound like such a big wuss. <laughs> this is the second time I've referenced my man tears and we're what, like 10 minutes into this podcast. But you know what? Oh, we're 20 minutes in. Jesus Christ, I talk a lot. I feel bad for you people that you have to listen to all this rambling every week. But hey, you decide to do it. So, you know, fucking it's, it's your own fault. But um, so I feel the man tears start to come up. And I'm like, whoa, how did I just suddenly in the last five minutes go from totally like uninvested and disconnected to, oh my God, that just broke my heart. So right there, I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And then from that point on, it was almost like in the roller coaster. And when you're on a roller coaster, you know, it takes like maybe like 30 seconds for you to reach the top. And then there's that first big drop. And then what, from that point on, you're kind of off to the races. Then you have all the corkscrews and loops and all you know, it, the ride just doesn't stop. So after those first 15 minutes where I went from not caring to caring some to caring a lot, the film just took me for a ride from that point on. Uh, I was able to like not even care anymore about the fact that I didn't find all the CG to be that believable. And I was fully invested in the characters, in the story, in the tone, the score, the editing, the look, the feel, the allegories, what they were trying to say, some of the interesting twists that Reeves and Mark Bomback have put on the Planet of the Apes mythology. And by the end of it, I consider the film to be a real triumph. Um, and now I really cannot wait to see what Reeves and Bombeck come up with for the Batman and conceivably a whole uh, The Batman trilogy. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, again, I didn't prepare anything here. So in terms of, of like specific pros and cons with uh, Planet of the Apes, it's really kind of, you know, off the top of my head, the performances really stand out. Uh, considering this is a film that's so heavy on effects, and has such a big overblown budget, uh, 
The fact that they allowed these quiet performances that are, a lot of it is about what's unspoken. A lot of it is done in sign language and subtitles. A lot of it is like these little subtle moments that really, you know, pivot and turn and enhance the story. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a bold movie. And Matt Reeves had to have a lot of faith in the people he cast to sort of bring this, this sprawling vision to life in a sort of almost minimalist way. Um, and the, you know, I, I just top to bottom, you know, just really, really superb filmmaking, filmmaking on display. Uh, do I think it's like an instant classic? I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think War for the Planet of the Apes is a very, very strong film. Uh, Matt Reeves has absolutely come into his own as a filmmaker. You know, that whole subplot of trying to figure out where he's at as a filmmaker. I, you know, I learned something about him yesterday, which is that he really has like evolved and gotten better and stronger and he's sharpening his tools. And the man's a fucking artist. You know, and I've been a fan from the beginning. You know, I, I was a fan of Cloverfield. I thought that was a very sort of um, unique and interesting mashup of the found footage horror genre and the sort of Godzilla kaiju genre. Um, I, I really liked Let Me In, uh, seemed like a totally different kind of film when I saw, I know it's a remake, but you know, for him to go from something like Cloverfield to something like Let Me In showed like, oh, you know what? This guy's got some range. This is interesting. And then, you know, I enjoyed Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And then this one, it just, it looks like he's really sort of like now he's firing on all cylinders. You know, he knows how to balance story with spectacle. He knows how to make characters that are multidimensional and fascinating where you can understand the villain, you can understand the hero, you can understand why both sides hate each other. He can fill you, the audience, with internal sort of conflict as to which way to go on certain issues. Um, and, you know, the stuff that always works for me is he seems to know how to weave in allegorical themes and have something to say about the world at large without becoming preachy and really hitting you over the head with them. So if he can bring that sort of sensibility to the Batman, it, it seems like he could create maybe like the perfect sort of midway point between uh, Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder. Because Nolan really grounded Batman. He made Batman films that were almost Batman by accident. You know, they, they were just gritty crime dramas that, you know, had things to say about the post 9-11 world that we live in. And Nolan really had a lot of heady ideas and concepts that he was trying to tackle with his Dark Knight trilogy. Then Snyder went full on into like the comic book imagery and the spectacle and the sort of grandiose mythology of Batman with, uh, you know, Batman v Superman and with the way that he has like sort of designed the character, he's made him like much larger than life. These ca the costumes are very, very comic booky and over the top, and the vehicles are very comic booky and over the top. I think Reeves is going to pull Batman more towards the Nolan direction, without actually stripping him of what makes him comic book cool, if you know what I mean. Because with these two apes movies, he fully embraces. Uh, special effects and big sort of summer thrills and larger than life moments and set pieces, but he grounds them in relatable human stories. 
with something to say. So I think Reeves is going to sort of create that perfect balance with Batman. Uh, and I cannot fucking wait. Um, but all right, I think, uh, I think that's it for my notes on Baby Driver and War for the Planet of the Apes. Before we get into the week's news, I want to send a quick shout out because I got another review. The El Fanboy Podcast has gotten another review. We are still at a stellar five stars. Um, and here is the latest review. Remember, folks, if you leave me a review, I will read it on the air. I will shout you out and I will love you from afar. Um, this one's short and simple. It's from iTunes user Jet1130. Uh, I don't know who this person is. Uh, Jet, if you have a Twitter handle and you're one of the people who contacts me, let me know who you are. I want to thank you. Um, he just wrote, or she, I'm not sure, but, uh, they wrote great job. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work, buddy. Um, so thank you. And by the way, I love it. You can call me buddy. You know, I always try to make this feel like, even though you can't speak to me on the podcast, I want this to feel like a conversation. So if you feel some sort of closeness with me, if you feel like my friend, just by listening to this and listening to my fucking rambling and ranting and raving, uh, fucking, you know, I love that. Uh, cause to me, you are my friends. Um, I'm not going to get sappy, but just, you know, I was, I was having this conversation with my daughter yesterday. Uh, you know, I don't know if I, I've never really discussed it, but you know, I'm an only child. I didn't have any brothers or sisters growing up. So the way I made friends, the way I made family was by connecting with others, connecting with outsiders, trying to make friends at school, trying to make friends at classes that I attended, trying to make friends at the park. You know, I've always, a part of me's always wanted to feel like I can connect with people because at home I was really just sort of, it was like me and my Nintendo and my action figures. Uh, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, it's not exactly like a suburban sort of setting where like the kids go out and play with the other neighborhood kids on the block and they go have adventures. Uh, we don't do that. So I lived a sort of isolated life for a very long time. So anytime I, I, I get to feel like I'm connecting with people, that's just extremely sort of special and uh, monumental for me. So even this, even Jet calling me buddy, even though we, I, we don't know each other personally, I just like that feeling that you guys feel a sort of personal connection to me. That's all I ever sort of hope for. But okay, enough of that stuff. It's time to get into the week's news. going to be starting this week's news cycle with the box office. It is Tuesday morning. The weekend actuals are in. Not a whole hell of a lot changed this week in terms of the actuals. Everyone is still in the uh, the same order that they were during the uh, Sunday estimates. But now we just have a better sense of what the differentials were of everything. So coming in at number one, Christopher Nolan's latest, Dunkirk, repeated at first place. There was a lot of chatter about whether or not it was going to be unseated by the Emoji Movie. Uh, even though the reviews for the Emoji Movie were horrendous and the cinema score was very, very mediocre. You know, typically speaking, an animated film 
uh, tends to beat out like a serious, high-minded grown-up film, especially when that serious, high-minded grown-up film has already been out a week. So a lot of people thought Emoji Movie was going to, you know, unseat it, and then there was a lot of chatter about how close the race was, that they were basically neck and neck. Uh, the final tallies are in. So Dunkirk uh, pulled in $26.6 million. That is only a 47.3% drop from week one. That is pretty damn impressive. Uh, the theater also gained 28 more screens this week. It's not a huge amount, but it gained screens as opposed to dropping. Um, and it, it, it pulled out a nice victory. It actually has a $2 million margin. So it's not as close as people thought. The Emoji Movie came in in its first weekend with a haul of $24.5 million. That is on over 4,000 screens, by the way. So it looks like the reviews and the crappy cinema score, which translates to crappy word of mouth, uh, really did this one in. So, you know, uh, it's funny. People want to try to tout Emoji Movie as, a, as an example that reviews don't matter. But I think that's a weird, th that's a weird way to go with it because this movie could and should have made a lot more money. You know, it had a pretty damn solid cast. It came from Sony, who, you know, they're, they're, they are no, um, what do you want to call it? You know, they're, they're no slouches. That's a major studio. And they put $50 million into this, and it still only made 24.5. So you want to argue that Rotten Tomatoes didn't hurt it or, or that this defied Rotten Tomatoes? I'd like to argue that you are on crack. This movie, had it had the good reviews, would have probably opened to like $50 million to $60 million. So the reviews absolutely hobbled this one, and you cannot tell me otherwise. Uh, then there's Girls Trip, which in its second week made $19.6 That is a very, very gentle drop of only 37%. Um, mind you, this is a movie that only cost 19 million bucks to make and no one really had any expectations for and it currently has a worldwide accumulated gross of 67 million bucks and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere this thing is probably going to be lingering in the top five and top 10 for at least the rest of august because uh, the word of mouth is so good and the reviews are so surprisingly good then the other big new release this week was the uh, uh, Atomic Blonde, which opened to $18.2 million. Uh, just to sort of put into perspective for you, uh, Atomic Blonde was only budgeted at $30 bucks. So with a worldwide haul now of $24 after, uh, after its opening weekend, this thing is going to more than likely be profitable. Nothing huge, but profitable. And what's interesting, though, is it actually opened bigger than Wick. A lot of people were you know, uh, comparing Atomic Blonde and John Wick because on paper, they're sort of similar. Um, you know, John Wick was a big surprise when it came out in 2014. It sort of came out of nowhere for a lot of people. And that film, when it opened, it opened to like 15, if I'm not mistaken. I, I want to get that figure correct for you before I say anything. Yeah, it opened to 14.4 million. 
Uh, Atomic Blonde, on the other hand, as I just said, opened to 18.2. So Atomic Blonde, which is opened by a woman, which is a big deal in this day and age, and we're living in the post-Wonder Woman era where everyone's trying to see if uh, female stars can be just regularly as bankable as their male counterparts and finally sort of shatter that glass ceiling. Well, Atomic Blonde did it. Atomic Blonde opened bigger than Wick, and the reviews were all right. Uh, nothing out of this world, but, you know, 75% is, you know, in the positives. So we'll see. We'll see how she does in the weeks to come. But that is a very respectable opening for Atomic Blonde. Um, then rounding out the top five, we have Spider-Man Homecoming, which dipped 40% uh, and lost 505 screens, probably to uh, the Emoji Movie. Um, with with uh, 13.2 million. So right now, Spider-Man Homecoming, just to put into perspective, uh, has a worldwide haul of 633.5 million dollars. And where does that stack? All right, that's always the big question. Where does that stack? Uh, in terms of Every Spider-Man movie that's ever come out, it's still in fourth place, and it's probably going to stay there in all actuality, because third place belongs to Spider-Man 3, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3, which made 336.5. I do not see Spider-Man Homecoming legging out another $50 million to surpass Spider-Man 3. I just don't see that happening. Uh, there's still, you know, there's a lot of competition coming out these next, you know, for, for the remainder of, of the summer and, uh, homecoming, which by the way, it, it's been dropping faster than most would have expected because the reviews are so good because the word of mouth is so pretty damn strong. People were expecting homecoming to maybe have a, uh, an afterlife like wonder woman where she has stuck around for such a long time, but homecoming is really sort of having the same sort of standard drops of any comic book flick. Um, and by the way, if you adjust the ticket prices, uh, it's actually in fifth place right now behind the first Andrew Garfield, The Amazing Spider-Man. Adjusted for ticket price inflation, The Amazing Spider-Man, directed by Mark Webb, actually made uh, $299.3 million bucks. So it's probably going to pass that one in the long run. I think it is going to make at least another uh, $24 million to surpass that. But it just goes to show you, Homecoming is great, but for some reason I think there is a little bit of fatigue when it comes to uh, our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Which then brings me, I don't usually go past the top five, but there's two notable things here. There's War from the Planet of the Apes, and there's Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. And there's also Wonder Woman. So there's actually three notable things here on the remainder of this week's top ten that I just want to touch on. War for the Planet of the Apes, for as good as it is, it continues to sort of struggle at the box office. You know, War for the Planet of the Apes dropped another 50%. It's 49.9%. It lost 726 screens in its third weekend, uh, and it pulled in 10.4 million. So let, let, let's kind of crunch these numbers, shall we? Uh, War for the Planet of the Apes cost 150 million bucks. And, you know, by, by sort of standard logic these days, that means it's going to need around $300 million to be deemed profitable and successful for Fox. Right now, through three weeks, it's at 225 
uh, 0.1 million dollars. So it's still 75 million short of being a profitable film. And it's really going to be one of those things, another, another one of these films that's an example of we need foreign box office to make this thing go over the top. Um, you know, the last film, thankfully, you know, working in its favor and hopefully uh, trending well for War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, Dawn made a staggering amount overseas. Dawn made $502 million overseas compared to 208 here domestic. So by and large, the big audience for this Planet of the Apes franchise is overseas. I mean, in China alone, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes made $107.3 million. Then it made an additional $33 million in France, another $18 million in Germany. Like, this thing performed like gangbusters overseas. Even, what is that, in Mexico. In Mexico, it made $24.5 million fucking dollars. In Russia, $20 million. So, you know, people overseas love the shit out of this movie so far. So, uh, I mean, that movie. They loved Dawn. So War for the Planet of the Apes, which has yet to open in certain markets like China... Uh, is going to be you know bank hoping betting heavily on the overseas markets because um, here what's interesting is domestically the series has basically gone down and I know we always talk about the law of diminishing returns but let, let let's kind of do a little history lesson here when Rise of the Planet of the Apes opened in 2011 and it was kind of an unknown commodity and no one really knew what to expect, you know, we had already seen the Tim Burton attempt at a remake slash reboot of the Planet of the Apes and that one fizzled. When Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you know, it was greeted with some skepticism, you know, and it had James Franco, who's always been somewhat of a wild card. We don't know whether to regard Franco as one of our finest stars or one of our most baffling stars. Um, and it opened to a very respectable $54.8 million, right? Then it grew. You know, that movie had such good word of mouth because the reviews were good, the cinema score was solid, that when Dawn came out three years later, that opened to $72.6 million. That is almost an increase of $20 bucks. That's pretty damn good. If you're Fox, you're happy. You're like, wow, this thing is growing. But then what happened? War for the Planet of the Apes, despite the fact that the hype has been through the roof, the fact that there was positive reviews on the film for like a month before it even came out, and it had every top critic in the in the world fawning over it, Dawn, uh, War opened to 56.2. That, that That's a drop-off of $16 million, and it basically puts it on par with Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the one that everyone was skeptical about. And it currently, you know, war domestically is trailing uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It still has $90 million before it can touch what Dawn made here stateside. I'm not sure it's going to make it at this rate. And it's just interesting to me. You know, the, the reviews are so good. It's a finely made film. Everyone's anointing Matt Reeves like this huge, great, a, you know, um, uh, top tier A list director, but War is kind of underperforming, and you know I don't think anyone. There's not. There's no cause for concern. There's no emergency here, but it's 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 just interesting that apparently audiences saw Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which also had great reviews, and decided 
we're not going to come back for part three. So, you know, is it crappy marketing? Is it even though is it one of those things where people like the film, but it's not necessarily something that they want to see more of? You know, I don't know. But War for the Planet of the Apes is just kind of not really doing much at the box office, and it's probably going to be gone fairly soon. And that's a shame because it is a finely made movie. Um, Valerian, by the way, so that's one of the other ones. This is only its second weekend, and its first weekend was not high to begin with. This week, it dropped down to eighth place. It had a 62.6% drop, and Luc Besson's picture only made $6.3 million. This, now that is a fucking, like, that's an emergency. Um, Yeah, the production budget on this film was $177.2 million. To date, through two weeks, it has only made $59.7 million. Now, you can make the argument that overseas might be able to save it. That remains to be seen. It, It hasn't really opened in many overseas markets yet. But, you know, it's this one is, you know, if War for the Planet of the Apes is hoping for big overseas, the people who put together Valerian must be on their hands and knees every single fucking day, hoping that overseas way overperforms. Because right now this film looks like it's going to it's tanking and anyone who put money into this thing is going to lose every cent of it um, at this point. Um, and then there's the other great success story. Wonder Woman is hanging in there. Here she is at week 10. And for week 10, she has only eased another 27.5%, another remarkably low drop. She's lost 320 more screens. She's only playing on 1,651 screens. And she still managed to pull in another 3.3 million bucks. Um, That puts her worldwide haul at 788.6 million fucking dollars. So let's put that into perspective, shall we? Wonder Woman has now passed. A few weeks ago, she passed Deadpool's domestic haul. Now she's passed Deadpool's worldwide haul. Um, you know, Wonder uh, Deadpool, which was a huge sensation when it came out last year, pulled in 783, and Wonder Woman is now at 788. Uh, it also passed both Suicide Squad and Man of Steel uh, in terms of their worldwide figures, which we already knew about. You know, Suicide Squad had topped out at 746. Man of Steel is not even a, a blip on the radar. It, uh, that one topped out at pretty much 668 worldwide so wonder woman is fucking kicking ass and taking names she's not going to become the top tier dceu grocer though because that's that title still belongs to batman v superman dawn of justice which made 868 million worldwide listen like, like i said last week i don't think anyone with any sort of reasonable sense of expectations, ever expected a solo Wonder Woman to top the cinematic event that was Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. But you know what? She's done very, very fucking well. So even though she's not going to beat the Dawn of Justice, 
she's uh, you know she she she's put to rest a lot of concerns about whether or not Wonder Woman is going to be a box office success and whether or not you can build a superhero film around a female heroine. So that is sort of our uh, that is the box office segment for this week. Now, in terms of, you know, the headlines of the day and some of the stories this week that have really jumped out at me as things worth sharing with you, uh, sort of hot off the presses, by the way, is a trailer that just hit the web a short while ago for a series that that wasn't even on my radar, but I now have to see. Um, So David Fincher fucking one of this generation's great directors, the man who's given us Zodiac, he gave us Seven, he gave us Fight Club, he's given us so much. Uh, he's, he's producing a serial killer series that is a Netflix exclusive. It's called Mindhunter, and it'll be arriving on October 13th. Um, he directed, you know, a few episodes of the show, and uh, the trailer just looks phenomenal. If you're someone who loved Zodiac, if you're someone who's into true crime, if you're someone who loved Seven, this just this just seems like it's a perfect sort of merging of artist and subject matter and network. I mean, Netflix as a whole, they've produced some phenomenal work. And I can't I almost can't fathom how it is that they've pulled all this stuff off sort of under the radar. So often a show comes seemingly out of nowhere when it comes to Netflix. And I'm like, how did this happen? And I didn't even hear about it until now. They're just kind of like constantly, quietly working on a, a, a you know, um, <laughs> I can't even speak. They're working on just top tier, interesting material um, at any given moment with you know, great Hollywood stars deciding to do a Netflix series. Great production value. I just... I was just having this conversation the other day with my buddy Colin. Like Netflix, you already had me at seventy at seven ninety nine and infinite streaming. You don't have to do all this stuff, and yet here they are churning out amazing series. Like you know, right now this week I started Ozark, uh, which I'm loving the fuck out of. I'm a huge Jason Bateman fan to begin with. And Ozark has got me gripped by the ball so far. My wife and I have watched the first three episodes, and we are like just way, way. And I almost missed War for the Planet of the Apes last night to just continue marathoning um, Ozark. So uh, Netflix, Jesus Christ, you guys just make such great, great stuff. I were also I checked out the first twenty minutes of Glow. Uh, and I've decided I'm going to stop and I'm going to restart it this time with my wife. I think she's going to love that show as well. So uh, I, I'm still on the search for something I need to watch that'll just be my show uh, right now. On the, because on our personal queue in terms of things that we can only watch together, we've got Ozark. We've got Glow on the Horizon. We've got Orange is the New Black. We've got all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to be busy with in terms of wife watching. I need something that's just me watching. So I'm still kind of on the hunt for that. Um, by the way, she's also watching The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if anyone else out there is catching it. I know it's a very popular show. Uh, I actually watched the first episode or two with her. And I had to disembark and just let it be her thing. Um, See, I have this thing, 
I kind of got it from my father, so I can't take credit for, for this filter that I'm about to share with you. But sometimes I can very easily see that something is well-made, that something is good quality, that something is overall a fine piece of entertainment, but I still make the decision this just isn't for me. This is not a world that I want to visit. You know, of all the different places I could put my consciousness, of all the different places I could dedicate my eyes, my heart, and my mind to, certain journeys are just like, I don't really want to go there. You know, what, what you've created is wonderful and masterful, and my hat's off to you. You have my undying and infinite respect. But I don't want to go there because when, I, when, I, when I'm done with you, I leave more depressed than I already was. Uh, and for me, Handmaid's Tale is sort of like that. It's just such a, an oppressively sort of grim experience for me that <clears throat> I just kind of had to abandon ship. In all honesty, I almost did that after the first two episodes of Ozark. As much as I loved it and as much as, a, as I am a huge fan of the series, I'm like, every time it ends and I go to bed, I end up having like dark, awful, lonely, vicious dreams. Because it's just one of those shows that just like it's suffocating how dark and grim those first two episodes are. Uh, I was I was warned or I was advised by a friend like, don't worry, it picks up, it gets a little lighter. And that's why I watched episode three yesterday. And I'm happy to report that it does lighten up a little bit. And it now is a world that I'm kind of comfortable giving more of my life to. Because just sometimes, I don't know, does anyone else feel that way? Does anyone else out there ever kind of have that feeling of like, this is really good, but I just don't want to go there? Uh, I think that's an important distinction, too, because sometimes people will, will mistake that feeling for saying that this show sucks or this movie sucked. And they'll say, ah, that movie was lame. But like, was it lame or was it just not a ride you wanted to take? You know, not every ride is for you. Not every movie is for you. Um so I just wonder if anyone else out there is able to sort of separate themselves in that way, where you can acknowledge and clearly see that something is phenomenal, but it's just not a journey you want to take. Um, so that, that was me with Handmaid's Tale. It was almost me with Ozark. Uh, it looks like Mindhunter, though, from David Fincher is going to be something I'm definitely into because I'm fucking obsessed with serial killers and, and all that sort of, and the investigation of murders and all that sort of stuff is so in my wheelhouse. Um, you know, the, the podcast Up and Vanished is very gripping for me right now, and I'm still listening to Case File every week for uh, if you guys are fans of true crime podcasts, I strongly suggest you check those out. But, um, all right, I'm going to segue now into some more mainstream stuff. I usually try to hit up things that everyone talks about. So right now, some of the bigger stories going on out there are, shockingly, uh, DC and Marvel related, since that's, you know, that's uh, every, every day, every week, there seems to be new material from the two comic book movie titans. So let's get into some of what's uh, happening on, in that realm. Uh, Suicide Squad has lost its director. Yes, Suicide Squad 2, they had lined up, how the fuck do you pronounce his name? Uh, Jaume Colette Serra. Uh, I mean, I see he's Spanish, so I shouldn't say it with such a, uh, a French sort of, <laughs> with such a French accent. But uh, Jaume Colette Serra, 
Uh, he was all set to do Suicide Squad 2, but he's basically, he's dropping out to do a movie with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yes, I know, you've all been dying for this Jungle Cruise movie, and that's what he's decided to do, which is a weird fit, if you ask me, because if you look at his, uh, his voix, um, it's all like darker sort of horror-ish movies. And you kind of thought maybe Suicide Squad 2 would be good for him because he's used to sort of darker subject matter. This is going to be a Disney movie with Dwayne Johnson that everyone describes as sort of like uh, like an Indiana Jones type, you know, uh, action, bouncy, adventure type flick. Uh, so who knows where, what direction that film is taking or if Mr. Sarah is just trying to um, stretch his creative wings. But here we go, man. He's left Suicide Squad 2. And, you know, to me, that's a little surprising because last week at Comic-Con, there were certain films that were omitted from the DC slate, like Gotham City Sirens, which we know is supposedly still coming, but for some reason they didn't mention it. Uh, But there were films that were featured prominently like Suicide Squad 2. And here they are just a week later losing the director for that. I don't want to go into, you know, overload with this, but I have covered in depth how many times DC has had trouble keeping its directors. I don't know that we want to chalk that up to this, but, you know, once again, here's a major DC film. It's a sequel to a movie that made $746 million fucking dollars, and this guy has flown the coop to go make a Disney film. So now we're back at square one trying to figure out who is going to make Suicide Squad 2. And maybe it's so far off and the script is still in its its earliest stages, which is why this director decided, you know, it's it's still a safe enough time to abandon ship. Uh, I wonder if this is going to bring other, you know, other people back into the uh, conversation. You know, there was a while there where people thought Mel Gibson might direct Suicide Squad 2. I wonder maybe he's going to come back now that uh, the, there's a vacancy in the Suicide Squad 2 director's chair. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Um, something else I find interesting in the DC realm is, you know, Justice League had a big moment at San Diego Comic-Con. You know, they had most of the cast there. They released a new trailer and it's fucking Justice League. You know what I mean? Like this is this is one of those films that should be like a cinematic event that everyone is fucking dying for. And they released a trailer last Saturday. And that trailer has already gotten completely lost in the shuffle and totally overtaken by a movie that I don't think anyone expected to be taking its, you know, taking its place as the most anticipated, most talked about superhero film and that's Thor Ragnarok Thor Ragnarok released its trailer like maybe five hours later and Variety now has a report that you know um, in terms of social media buzz in terms of conversations that that trailer has dominated or that 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 the film is dominating uh, Thor Ragnarok had generated 72,000 new conversations this week By contrast, Justice League generated 22,000. That's 50,000 fewer. So here's how it works. Comscore releases the films, you know, it releases data on the conversations about certain films that are taking place in a given week. And for the second week straight, Thor Ragnarok is the big one. So Thor Ragnarok sits atop the list. Uh, It's still got 96 days until it's released. 
and it's at uh, just about 72,000 conversations. Uh, for in cumulative, it's had 765,000 conversations in total. It, by the way, it, which had a new trailer, which I'll talk about in a second, it generated 50,000 conversations. Avengers Infinity War, which did not even release a trailer and doesn't come out until next year, generated 41,000 conversations on social media this week. Uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi, which uh, did not release a new trailer, but did you know, have like that, that behind-the-scenes featurette release last week at Comic-Con. Uh, that one generated 25,000 conversations. Then that brings us to fifth place. That's Justice League, which is only 110 compared to Thor Ragnarok's 96. So there's only about a 14-day difference. So they're both coming out at roughly the same time, and they both release trailers at just about uh, literally the same fucking day, and only 21, uh, 22,000 people, only 22,000 conversations are taking place about Justice League on you know across social media right now so what the fuck is that why are so many more people buzzing about thor ragnarok than justice league it just astounds me you know and listen it doesn't astound me that ragnarok looks very good i i've actually been on that bandwagon since before there was a bandwagon if anyone who you know if you've been following me even when i worked for the other site i've been talking about thor ragnarok for over a year now as soon as I heard about Taika Waititi, as soon as I heard about Kate Blanchett, as soon as I heard about Jeff Goldblum and, and uh, Carl Urban, as soon as I saw the cast, as soon as I heard what the sort of story was going to be like, an intergalactic buddy road trip comedy that would unite Thor and the Incredible Hulk, I told people, listen, this is going to be a film to watch out for. And while that may not seem like a very bold proclamation, because yeah, of course, Mario, all superhero fucking movies are things to watch out for these days. But not really, because Thor, in particular, his first two films almost seemed like arbitrary. They were there because he's part of the Avengers and they need to sort of flesh out his arc. But let's be honest, the first Thor movie, it was fine. It did decent numbers, but it was not a film that rocked anyone's world. It didn't change. The, 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 of the four main Avengers franchises... Thor was probably the one that people cared the least about. I feel like even Incredible Hulk, which didn't make that much money, there was more just sort of genuine interest in it because people love the Incredible Hulk character. Uh, the, and then Thor the Dark World. I mean, what the fuck was that? You know, that was a mess. It was gray. It was grim. It was dark. No one gave a fuck. The reviews were tepid. The box office was average. And in general, you know, it proved once again, like the Thor movies are not necessarily an event film. You can skip the Thor movies and still enjoy the Avengers movies and, so, and, and most of the other MCU canon. Thor Ragnarok, though, I've been saying for over a fucking year now, has everything going for where it's going to be the first Thor movie that's an event that you have to see because it's going to be something that helps pivot the story, gets us ready for uh, Avengers Infinity War, and it just looks like it's going to do huge. So this is all to say that I always knew Ragnarok was going to be a special film, but even I cannot believe that there's more buzz and more positive energy about a third Thor movie than there is about a first Justice League movie. 
I mean, that pisses me off. I gotta be honest. It pisses me off that we've come to this place because I've waited my whole fucking life for a Justice League movie. But the DC Extended Universe, as shepherded by Zack Snyder for those first few years, has pissed away so much of the goodwill that people have that Justice League no longer seems to have that shine. Even that trailer, which I enjoyed, and I generally am trying to be optimistic about this film, there's nothing about it that gives you the goosebumps. Like, wow, this is so special. You know, I wasn't even an Avengers fan. I wasn't a Marvel person growing up. But when those Avengers trailers came out and I realized what the MCU was doing, uniting all these heroes in this shared universe, it felt special. It felt like, wow, this feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I've never seen something like this before. This is so fucking cool. I don't even give a fuck about half the people on the Avengers, but I've got to be there day one. This looks like it's going to be something very special. Justice League, which is filled with characters that I've grown up loving and adoring, I'm more or less going to see out of a sense of obligation. And that's fucking sad. And it looks like I'm not alone. So don't roll your eyes like I'm being a Debbie Downer. There is actual data here. Okay. The two trailers, Ragnarok, Justice League, released the same day. Ragnarok, Two weeks straight is the top of the social buzz. Justice League is in fucking fifth place. People are not talking about this movie excitedly. It's fucking unfathomable to me as a DC fan that we've come to this place. How can it be that Justice League is not the number one thing everyone's talking about after Comic-Con? Like, that's a fucking tragedy. Um... And by the way, speaking of tragedy, like what the hell has journalism come to? Yesterday I was on Twitter, uh, Tavo Borrego, one of our, one of the regulars passed along an article to me about, uh, this report that's been circulating and picked up by all kinds of fucking places like comic book movie and movie pilot and well-known websites about Ben Affleck signing on to do a Bat Trilogy with Matt Reeves and a Batman Beyond movie, and everyone's sharing it, and everyone's passing it along, and all these other sites are running with it. Nobody bothered to fucking look at the source. First of all, most of these sites, even like Digital Spy and Movie Pilot and whatever, they were crediting Comic Book Movie with the source. Meanwhile, the actual article on comicbookmovie.com has a source on it. In other words, they did not generate it. It comes from some South African site called fortressofsolitude.co.za. This is a fucking South African website no one's ever heard of. Do you guys really think they have the scoop on what Warner Brothers is doing? You think this site no one's ever fucking heard of knows about a deal that Ben Affleck signed? Like, come on, people, get fucking serious here. And then last week, Screen Rant continued its, 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 its race to the bottom. I used to love Screen Rant. They write very in-depth articles. If you go, if you, if, when you compare them to all the other sites out there that cover similar information, they put so much perspective and history and interesting stuff into each article. It's, it's always a fascinating read. Like a lot of times when I see a news article that's been covered by three different sites, I'll read the Screen Rant version of it because I know that they're going to give me the most rounded out information. 
And yet these last two weeks, I'm left going, what the fuck are you doing? At Comic-Con, there was that Justice League trailer we were just talking about, right? Do you see Superman in that movie? No, you don't. Does he, quote-unquote, return in that movie? No, you don't. There's something alluded to at the very end there with Alfred, but we don't even know if that's necessarily him. And the headline that they ran to get you to click on their version of the trailer read something along the lines of, Superman returns in New Justice League trailer. I'm like, are you fucking serious? You're going to post something with that sort of clickbait garbage title? Are you like, are you, since when did Screen Rant stoop to that level? Holy shit, things must be tough over there. And then there's this thing that happened a few days ago where Joe Manganiello had to call them out because they misquoted and misrepresented what he said. And what's interesting to me is, I know there, you know, my old buddy, Joseph Jammer Medina, who, Joe, if you're listening, I fucking love you, but you're trying to defend them. I'm sure you have your reasons. You think it was an honest mistake. But the fact of the matter is, they completely misquote and misrepresent what Manganiello says, and I can't help but feel like it was in order to generate clicks. Okay, because the headline basically read that that Manganiello's future as Deathstroke is not up to him. And they put that in quotes. It's not up to me. But that's not what he's talking about. If you actually read the article, and especially if you read the source article from The Hollywood Reporter, the not up to me quote is in reference to when they can reveal whether or not he's Deathstroke. He said, it's not up to me when we can let everyone know whether or not I'm going to be playing Deathstroke in the Batman. That's very different. In terms of his return as Deathstroke, he basically said nothing. It was a nothing burger. The whole thing really was a nothing burger because he was asked about it. And you know, they asked him, like, you know, so did you survive the rewrite? You know, is Deathstroke going to be in the Batman after every all the trials and tribulations that have gone on with that film? And he basically said, well, I do know the answer definitively. I'm not able to share it with you. And it's not up to me when that sort of thing can be revealed. That's all he said. There's really not much to run on there. But Screen Rant turns it into this very sort of negative, decisive quote, this headline of Manganiello's future as Deathstroke is not up to him, according to him. And get this, after Manganiello called them out on it, they took down that tweet, they rewrote the headline, and then they tweeted it out with a headline that was much more accurate. And listen, I hate to be going after my fellow writers and my fellow journalist types, but come on, man. Take your fucking job seriously. We're living in an age right now where everything is fake news and everyone is learning slowly and gradually to distrust all news sites and everything that you don't like hearing is fake news. Let's not feed that point of view. Let's take careful consideration into everything that we write and post. If you want to be taken seriously as a writer, as a journalist, as a site for news, you should be vetting these stories, checking the sources, and making sure that what you are reporting is fucking right. Or at least based on something that you can rely upon. Oh, I did not even mean to get into all that, but it just... It popped into my head, and now it's got me thinking also, you know, Aaron, 
Varola, another one of the regular listeners and commenters on this podcast, mentioned that you know, he'd be fascinated to hear what the process is like because you know I work alongside one of the longest tenured scoop bombers in internet journalism history, and that would be Kelvin Chavez, who founded Latino Review. That's a website where most a, a huge amount of the biggest. Uh, Hollywood scoops, especially in the superhero and genre film uh, arena, came from Latino Review. So you want to know how it is we decide when a scoop is ready to print and sort of what the process is. So I'm going to, I guess I'll I'll pull back the curtain a little bit to kind of let you know what goes into the release of a scoop. Okay. So here's sort of the legwork. Uh, I should preface this by saying it's it's really Kelvin who, by and large, has the bulk of the sources. You know, I, I'm someone who helps him report the news. I'm someone who can kind of help d- you know, dive a little deeper and get some of the history on why this news is important. But Kelvin has established some amazing partnerships and relationships with folks who work within the Hollywood machine itself, who he's gained their trust after years of you know, networking with them and socializing with them at press junkets and red carpet premieres. Kelvin has a gift for making friends. And I, I'm fucking, this guy, he's the man. So what, what tends to happen is you hear a whisper. You hear a rumor. Somebody comes to you, hey, did you hear that so-and-so is going to do so-and-so? And then Kelvin then goes and starts reaching out to his sources that are close to that sort of situation, be it a studio, be it a, you know, a franchise in particular. He has his little Rolodex of people who are close to that. And Kelvin, to his credit, is not satisfied with just one confirmation. The guy's a professional. He always looks for two, maybe even three independent sources who will back up what he has heard. So like that, like that, there's an extreme vetting there. It's not just, oh, listen, so-and-so tal y tal said that, you know, uh, Tom Cruise is going to step in for Iron Man in, uh, when Robert Downey Jr. steps out. Like, you know, like, it was, like, it's, not, it's not like we hear that and they go, oh, that, that'll get a lot of clicks and then we just run it. No. He will then contact publicists and inside sources to say, have you heard this? Is this true? And then he does that at least one other time, sometimes three, if it's something that sounds too good to be true. Then what, what tends to happen on my end of things is he comes to me, he says, here's what I've, you know, here's what I've been told. I've had it confirmed. Do you want to write the story and work your magic? And then that's what I do. I've generated a couple of scoops on my own, but typically most of the scoops that you've seen on latinoreview.com and then now at the Splash Report, which is where you should be going for all of your Hollywood scoops, a lot of them come directly from Kelvin. Um, And mind you too, that first step sometimes changes. The first step and what brings a scoop to you. There are times where people come to him and there's times where we decide, you know what? Let's find out such and such information. That's what happened two weeks ago when we broke the story that Matt Reeves has seemingly tapped Mark Bomback to help him write the Batman. 
You know, I had taken note that no one has really reported on this. No one knows who's writing the Batman. It's a big fucking deal. You know, the Batman is a holy grail property. And there was a script that was co-written by Ben Affleck, Jeff Johns, and rewritten by Chris Terrio that has been thrown out. So people are going to want to know who's replacing them. Who's going to actually write this new Batman film, conceivably a Bat trilogy? And I sort of, you know, I sicked Kelvin on it. I said, go, you know, contact all your little birds and find out. And that's what he did. And we can't, you know, we got that scoop for you that it looks like he's going to be relying on his Planet of the Apes writer, Mr. Bombach, to co-write the Batman with him. Um, but then, then, then there are the other ones where people from the industry directly related to things will reach out and say, dude, you've got to report this because this shit's crazy. You can't name me cause I'll get fired, but here you need to bring this story to the masses cause people deserve to know what's going on. And that's something that happened with Rogue One, a Star Wars story, when we were the first ones to report that uh, that the Gareth Edwards film was basically getting like reshot by like half, and that they were bringing in another director to handle the reshoots, and there was a whole crap ton of rewrites. You know, we broke that story because someone related to it could not believe what was happening, and they came to Kelvin and said. You've got to you've got to sp- sound the alarm on this because this is fucking nuts, and that also happened with Justice League earlier this year. You know, we got contacted by someone who just could not believe the uh, the amount of time and times that this film had basically been sort of changed from the, from the way it resembles nothing what it was originally going to be, and they came over and explained to us. That this is a story that you know DC fans and everyone should know about, and then we did our due diligence, we got our confirmations, and then we ran the story. So hopefully that that answers your question, Aaron. That is the typical, you know, the, the 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 process. You know, there's a story, there's getting it confirmed by one or two, sometimes even three independent sources, and then there's the sharing of said story, and then there are times where honestly, like I will help veto stories. You know, Kelvin has a great filter. You know, he, he tends to know what's worth printing and what's not. But sometimes he will come to me with like, oh, I heard this. And I'll just say, I don't think that's a story. You know, I'll be very honest with him. I'll be like, you know what? People either assume that that's already happening or this is not going to be a surprise to anyone or just or someone has already sort of said this thing. So there are times where I, you know, I'll kind of step in and be his filter and say, Eh, that's not really worth running. Or this sounds amazing, but unless we get that third confirmation, it's not worth it because if it does end up wrong, we're going to look terrible. So, you know, so every once in a while, I am part of that process as well. Uh, and it's, it's fun. It's exciting. Whenever I get those calls from Kelvin, I always like pull away from my kids and my wife. I'm like, this ought to be good. And he comes to me with some interesting shit that he's heard. And then we decide sort of how to proceed from there. I, I, I lead a very sort of charmed existence. I got to tell you. But uh, all right, let's, let's get back to the news. I think I've uh, tangented you guys enough. <laughs> tangent you? Tangented you? I'm making up words. Uh, Brie Larson was recently asked, you know, she's playing Captain Marvel 
and now that we're in the post Wonder Woman world, uh, everyone you know is quick to try to draw comparisons between Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman, and, and will Wonder Woman put more pressure on Captain Marvel to succeed? Invite you know, it's just you know, there's been a lot of conversation about the female superheroes, and here's what she had to say about the pressure. She said, "I mean, I feel pressure in that it's a character that people love and are inspired by, and I see that, and so I want to do right by that." And I want people to feel like their character is honored. But why is there pressure, she asks. I don't understand why there's a pressure put on women as if it's the most shocking concept ever that a woman can open a movie. It's like, it's kind of a tired concept. We've proven it for a long time, so I don't put pressure on in that way at all. And you know what? I think she's absolutely right. You know, we have to think forward on these things. We have to be forward thinking when it comes to this. We have to get to a place soon where we're no longer arguing about whether or not a woman can open a movie and how one film succeeding instantly ties into another film succeeding or failing. It's just, let's just, let's stop talking about Captain Marvel as if it's this very important seminal feminist female situation and just treat it like a superhero film. Just, you know, it, it shouldn't have any more or less pressure on it than your average Marvel film, okay? Um, you know, the ones that should have more pressure on them are the big ones, like the Avengers, like Thor Ragnarok that partner up certain characters and stuff like that. But honestly, Captain Marvel shouldn't have any more uh, going against it or for it or in general extra stakes, I should say, than uh, Doctor Strange or Ant-Man or Black Panther, you know, so I, I'm kind of with Miss Larson here that it's time to stop talking about the pressure and, and whether or not Wonder Woman somehow, you know, has affected the development of Captain Marvel and vice versa. Let's just fucking put that to rest already. Um, and then there was just a cool thing, too. You know, Sam Jackson didn't have much to say, but we know he's going to be back as Nick Fury. Um, when they asked what he's most looking forward to about Captain Marvel, he said, hanging out with Bree. Bree's like, awesome. Bree's my girl. And if you guys are forgetting, you know, this is not going to be the first time they've worked together. Brie Larson was also in Kong Skull Island with Mr. Jackson. So it sounds like they've worked up a nice little rapport on that film. So it looks like, you know, this will be a bit of a reunion for them. So good for them. Also on the Marvel spectrum here, <clears throat> uh, Josh Brolin, as we know, is going to be appearing as Cable and as Thanos next year in two very anticipated films. Uh, you know, he's going to be in the uh, Avengers Infinity War as Thanos, and he's going to be Cable in Deadpool 2. Uh, and people are just sort of wondering, you know, what are the logistics of that? How did that come to be? Uh, and what what is that dynamic like, having Brolin appear in two different uh, major superhero films in a given year? Uh, so someone spoke to David Leitch, who's the director of the film. He was the co-director of John Wick. And he said... I think everybody in sort of the Marvel and Fox world considered it, and they take their time and make measured moves. But I think everyone thought it was prudent and was okay in terms of the way Thanos is portrayed and Cable is portrayed. They're very different in styles, and in terms of the way they are presented in the movies, obviously, 
you know, we couldn't have cast a better cable. We were filming last night, and both of them, he's referring to Brolin and Reynolds, both of them were on set, and the chemistry is amazing. It's such a fun movie to be on. I'm really grateful. Um, and in terms of just the logistics, you know, the, the, the rumors are that Fox and Marvel worked on a sort of behind-the-scenes sort of uh, deal again with Fox in order to make this happen. Because Marvel does put like non-compete clauses in their contracts, you know, in the contracts of their stars. So how the hell did they get, you know, how the hell did Fox get Brolin? So it seems like it might have been part of a deal. You know, they, they made a deal like, listen, we want Ego, the living planet, and Guardians of the Galaxy, so you can have Josh Brolin. I mean, I don't think that one really works because Brolin was cast after Guardians was already well into its development. But the point is, there have been lots of these little tit-for-tat deals. So maybe the deal for Brolin, uh, you know, like, we'll give you Brolin, but you have to give us the scrolls for Captain, Amer- Captain Marvel. See, that makes a lot more sense. You know, that, that's probably it, in all honesty. They said, okay, you can use Brolin, but we have to get the scrolls. Um, and if that's the case, that sounds like a very fair trade-off. Um, speaking of the chemistry between Reynolds and Brolin, you know, uh, Reynolds also had something to say. He said, uh, I think it's going to be very interesting. He's referring to the uh, dynamic between the two characters. He says, I've spent this last week on the business end of many Josh Brolin punches, both verbal and physical and literal, and it's going to be pretty fantastic. He's going to be epic. He's going to be an epic cable. Uh, remember, he's also a producer on the film, so he has to say how epic everything is going to be. But what that quote does sort of bring to the forefront is that Deadpool and Cable are going to have that sort of dynamic where, yes, they work together, but they also sort of antagonize one another and they beat the shit out of each other, it sounds like. So uh, it looks like that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of characters who like double dipping um, you know, the, the, there's been a lot of chatter lately about uh, Alan Richson wanting to play Shazam. Uh, he's been doing stuff where he's trying to like tease it. So you know, he he pointed out that in the uh, DC logo that played before Wonder Woman and is now part of their like DC fanfare before the DCEU movies, the Shazam that they show looks a lot like him. So he tweeted an image of that and uh, he said, "Okay, here's the thing, I." Uh, Oh, hold on. I have a call coming in. BRB. And, you know, he uh, he's basically being coy as if he wants to make an announcement about that, but can't. Uh, you know, for me, that whole situation's just kind of like, I don't know. You know, I, I feel like there's so many actors in the world. Alan Richson already played uh, Aquaman once. <laughs> Let me try to get this straight. Yeah, sorry, I had to hit the old pause button just to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass. So he was Aquaman on Smallville, and now he's trying to play Shazam in the Justice League movie. And to me, like, this sort of stuff always drives me up a wall, and maybe this is just my own personal pet peeve, but my wife and I always say, like, it's, I guess there's just a shortage of actors in the world, that there's so much double-dipping. That there's actors who who play in like the the opposing franchises that they're that they've already worked for, and just get reused and recycled so much. You know, let me just a little insight for me. As an actor growing up in New York, you are constantly told 
how many actors there are and how replaceable you are and how insane the competition is. You know, like when I got into uh, LaGuardia High School of Performing Arts, they told me I, would, I represent 5,000 people who didn't get selected to be there, who auditioned and weren't good enough to make it into that school. And I made it in and that was an honor for me. But then as I was in that school more, and, and even in classes I took in other acting conservatories, you hear this phrase a lot about how there's thousands of actors. And it's true. Like, you go to an audition, and it's really daunting. You go to the waiting room, and you see 30 yous standing there. You walk in, you've been working on your lines and getting ready for your audition, and you get in, and there's 30 guys who are around the same height, same weight as you, same hair color, who are all working on the same thing, <clears throat> And you walk away with this, you know, this, this daunting impression of like, Jesus Christ, I'd better be amazing because there's a million actors in this world. What's so special about me that they're going to cast me? And yet <clears throat> my wife and I have this game that we play whenever we start watching a new series, we just start calling out the eight other series we've seen these, these actors in. And we even have our own little like inside joke about just like, we just call it same 40 actors. Same 40 actors. So every time we start a new show and we see someone, we just turn to each other and go, same 40 actors. Because a lot of times, like, oh, look, she was in Dexter and Walking Dead and Sons of Anarchy. And he was in Bates Motel and American Horror Story and Hannibal. Like, whatever it is, like, we just start running down. Like, these same actors just get cycled. Like, it seems like Hollywood, there really is... Uh, a, a shortage of actors out there, apparently. So if they really do, I don't think they're going to, but if, if Alan Richson does end up being Shazam, I'm just like, what the fuck? You couldn't find some other square jawed guy who could play big, dumb, lovable Shazam. Uh, it's just, uh, that's just my own little, uh, that's another tangent. I, I'm full of tangents today. But I'm just like, if you've already played a major DC character, that should be it for you. Move on. Go do something else. <sighs> okay. Um, I'm, I alluded to the, the It remake. And you guys have a chance to check out that trailer? They released a new trailer. I saw it on the splashreport.com. Um, it looks fucking scary as shit. You know, I was I was way into it just from the first teaser. And I was way into it just from the fact that I love the source material and the first It. You know, I've shared on this podcast how terrified I was by Tim Curry's It. Um, so I've always been in. This trailer just further got me like, I need to see this. And then I showed it to my wife and like she rarely says what I'm about to say. Uh, but she said it for this. She said, you better not see that without me. Yeah, you know, for my wife, for better or worse, you know, she knows that ship has sailed. You know, for better or worse, we've got two kids. It's very rare that we get to go to the movie. So she knows that more often than not, I'm going to see a movie she really wanted to see. Because if I wait for our schedules to sync up, I'll the movie will just leave theaters. That's happened way too many times. But she put her foot down on it. She saw that latest trailer and she said, you'd better not go to that without me. Because it really does look that good, which is surprising <clears throat> because I was very anxious. I was very anxious when Carrie Joji Fukunaga was uh, basically replaced. He was forced out of that production. Uh, coming off of season one of True Detective, I was dying to see what he did with Stephen King's It. 
Um, but you know what? It looks like who you know, Andres Muschetti, uh, is bringing the goods. You know, and something else that's really reassuring here is that one of the reasons that Kerry Fukunaga had to leave was because Warner Brothers was toying with the idea of condensing the entire thing into one film. Remember, he wanted to tell two movies, just like the miniseries had, that uh, you know one takes place in the past, one takes place in the present, and one you have the kids, and the next you have them as adults. Uh, and it looks like they really are sticking to that. Um, and not just that, but they're really not skimping on the running time. You know, the the original uh, TV miniseries ran a total of 192 minutes. And that's total. You know, and mind you, you know, it, it might have felt longer because they had commercials. It was for network television. But the complete miniseries was 192 minutes. Uh, the first It movie, this one that's coming out now, the, the first of the two Andy Machete It movies, is clocking in at 135 minutes just on its own. That's a two-hour and 15-minute film. And then there's still going to be the second part, which, you know, it would have to be a fucking hour-long movie to not surpass 192 total. So it looks like they really are going to take their time telling this story. Now, I'm sure some of you, you know, your assholes puckered a little bit when I said a 215-minute horror movie. It might have seemed like, oh, no, is this going to be long and bloated? But remember, that book is really, really long. The, uh, the, the, the Stephen King book is 1,140 pages. There's a lot of material to mine there, a lot to pull from if you're making a movie out of this saga. So making you know two movies that are at least two hours long seems like they really are going to try to honor that book. Um, so listen, I can't wait for it. It comes out on, I believe, September 8th. Uh, I'm now on lockdown from being able to see it without my wife. So hopefully I get to see it. But that for me, that was one of the big things that came out of this week. You know, that new trailer uh, and just how good it looks. I love a good horror film. I love Stephen King. And I did not expect to be so into this. And I am. Uh, something else is, you know, there's some new comments from Mr. James Cameron a filmmaker who I've mentioned before, I absolutely adore. If you look at his resume, he's basically got nothing but hits. You know, he's made some of my favorite films of all time. He made Terminator 2, he made True Lies, he made Titanic, which was on TV the other day. And Titanic is another, another one of those just infinitely watchable movies for me. And yes, even Avatar, I saw three times in theaters. I know all the complaints that everyone says and why you probably just rolled your eyes when I mentioned Avatar. But I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I have my reasons, and I'm sticking to them. Um... But, you know, with all this recent chatter about Terminator and him getting the rights back, uh, there's finally some fresh quotes about how much he sees for this new term, this new lease on life that he's able to give Terminator, um, assuming that he's able to get the film rights, which is what he's planning on doing when they come up for grabs. I believe it's either next year or the year after. Um, it looks like he wants to make a new trilogy. All right. A new Fucking trilogy, people. Uh, here's what he said. You know, he says one of the big questions he's trying to figure out right now as he as he maps this out is he says, can it still have relevance now? 
where so much of our world is catching up to what was science fiction in the first two films. And that's a great point. That's something that I said just on my own when this news first broke, that the whole idea of Skynet and the idea of the Terminators and all this and, and where, where we were heading in terms of technology you know, that sort of stuff is like, it, it, it's very timely and it's very relevant. And back in 1984, when the first Terminator came out, and then in 1990, when the sequel came out, you know, the, these were still considered like far off concepts. It was pure science fiction. But Cameron notes here that we already live in a world of predator drones and surveillance everywhere and big data. That, you know, right now, it's not even that much of a leap to imagine that Skynet and self-aware AI can happen. And he was sort of on the vanguard of that. You know, the, the, those Terminator movies, in terms of their mythology and the science fiction themes that they try to explore, they, you know, they were, they, that's cutting edge shit. He saw this stuff coming. So that's why he apparently is not looking at just one, but he's looking at potentially a three-film arc, a, a Terminator trilogy um and listen i'm fucking way in i am way way in uh i'm a little surprised that it's tim miller who would be supposedly directing at least the first part of this of this new trilogy uh because listen i like tim miller i love deadpool i've i've gone up to bat for him before i once wrote an open letter on another site aimed at Ryan Reynolds for what he did, sort of muscling Miller out of Deadpool 2. So I'm not anti-Miller at all, but Miller still is a sort of untested filmmaker. You know, Deadpool was his first feature film debut. To entrust him with a holy grail property like Terminator and to hope that he can succeed where others have failed. Remember, there, there have been, you know, there was Terminator Salvation, there was Terminator Genesis, there was that Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines that preceded them. You know, lots of other people have tried to pick up on Cameron's work and expand on it and have failed miserably. So if Cameron thinks that Miller's got the goods, I mean, that's a hell of a vote of confidence, but like, he'd better fucking bring it then. He'd better bring it. And for a guy with only one film on his resume, that just makes me a little bit, uh, shall we say, skeptical. Uh, but all right, moving on. We're almost done here, folks. I just kind of wanted to quickly refer to this new controversy going on. HBO has a new drama coming out called Confederate. And there's all this outlash, you know, the backlash against it because it's basically uh, like an alternate history. It, it basically toys with the idea of what happens if the South would have won the Civil War. Um and a lot of people are bugging out because it means that, you know, slaves would still be in existence uh, and people don't want to go down that route right now. They think it's a very harmful form of fiction. Um, so HBO actually had to release a statement. They had to release a statement as to why they're going to move forward with Confederate. So here's HBO. Here's an excerpt from HBO's uh, response. They say, we have great respect for the dialogue and concern being expressed around Confederate. We have faith that writers Nichelle, Dan, David, and Malcolm will approach the subject with care and sensitivity. The project is currently in its infancy, so we hope that people will reserve judgment until there is something to see. Um, 
And that's the thing, you know, people have not, you know, it was one of the number, it it was the number one trend here in the States on Twitter at one point over the weekend, the hashtag no Confederates and people are speaking out publicly against this project. Uh, I just wish people would just hold their fucking horses and see what comes of this. You know, it's being brought to us by the people who are giving us Game of Thrones, who by now you'd think would have won over the trust and respect and patience of the masses. But also HBO as a whole, as a network, has always been very progressive and very left-leaning. They are very pro-progressive causes. If you look at a lot of their original projects, a lot of their original films, a lot of them are basically, you know, cheerleading pom-pom projects for progressive views. You know, there's been a lot of stuff there that's, you know, pro-gay, pro-equality, pro, you know, anti-racism, very like HBO as a whole wears its its politics on its sleeve. Uh, and somehow they, you know, it's not to their detriment. You know, they, they, if you look at what they put out, they have a very obvious political leaning towards the left. And yet HBO is still probably the most successful cable network because people love it. And even though it's, it, it kind of hits you over the head with its political ideology, the, 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 the quality of what they create is so good and it's so high that people put up with how sort of preachy they can be. Um, so with all that in mind, I would say to the people bugging out about No Confederate, let's just see. You know, there's already been series. What's that one on uh, Amazon Prime, The Man on High Castle or something? I haven't watched it. But remember, that's also an alternate history where the Nazis won World War II and the Nazis are pretty fucking evil too. And somehow that, you know, somehow we're okay with that continuing. Where was the huge hashtag no Nazi backlash for the man in High Castle? I don't know. But here is this no Confederate backlash. So I just wish people would just chill out. Let's see what happens. These you know, HBO has a tried and true history and pedigree of, of doing great, thoughtful, interesting projects films, television shows. Let's give them a chance here. If they're going down this controversial path, it must be because they have something they say and something they want to do. All right. Um, and that pretty much wraps us up on the news. And we're going to be wrapping this up and bringing this show uh, home in just a second. Just want to give an update to those of you who are curious about uh, my creative exploits. So this Thursday, I'm meeting with one of my writer friends and we're working on a script. We're going to start writing a script. Um, I'll let you know what comes out of our uh, out of our initial session on Thursday. We've already started to brainstorm the sort of tone and the sort of story we want to tell. Now it's just about seeing you know, how we mesh and what story comes out of that brainstorming session. Um, and there's also the fact that I've been sitting on for a while the idea of starting my own theater company here in New York. And it looks like we're going to start putting the pedal to the metal on that idea. Uh, My wife and I have founded it. We've got a name. We've got a website. uh, And now we're starting to do the due diligence of finding out how to make it a legitimate company, register it with the state of New York, copyright the name, 
Uh, we're looking at theater spaces. We, we, we might have a production that goes up here in, in, uh, in Queens as early as December of this year. And I would be directing it. So, you know, there's, I've got some interesting stuff on the horizon. I'm trying to, like I said last week or the week before, trying to sort of honor the artist and the creator in me. Because after a while, it gets tired of talking about what everyone else is making and creating. Uh, it's time for me to create some stuff. You know what I mean? So it's been a pretty good week and productive on that on that end. You know, we're going to be writing and I'm going to be looking into directing and producing a show um, right here in New York. But OK, guys, uh, as always, if you have any questions, tweet them in hashtag L fanboy uh, and I'll be happy to try to tackle them on the show. Uh, please rate, like, review and share your reviews. Help me out a tremendous amount uh, on the uh, on all of the different podcast apps. So um, that's it, guys. Thank you so much. And until next week, adios.